Let's open in prayer. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Oh, Father, that we should come from different parts of the world and different parts of the USA and be together here in perfect unity because of the work of the Spirit through his word. Lord, you are the one who blesses us and who blesses us with fellowship with you through your self-revelation in your word. Help us to learn how to rejoice evermore and to be transformed as we are able to see ourselves more clearly in the mirror of your word and are able to see you more clearly as the author of this word. Help us today that we might come to understand more perfectly what is your truth and how it should enrich our lives and the lives of all with whom we come in contact. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, just as a quick review, and for you who are coming in new, this is going to be a little difficult to, to say, oh, what, in the, what, what is he saying here? Where did he get these ideas? And I'm sorry, if, you know, but I, we just don't have time to go back to the details to establish what we have been talking about. But just get the, the main idea is that the Psalms are not to be seen as little individually wrapped pieces, but they are to be seen in the context of the structure of the book. We're talking about a book <coughs> excuse me, that was developed over four to five hundred years. We have a majority of the Psalms probably one half, 72 are specifically designated as by David, but we know that others are by David, 75 out of the 150 are by David, and they would date at 100, about 1000 B.C., but we have also, as we just saw in the last hour, a description of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. in Psalm 74 and 79. We have a destruction of Samaria in Psalm 80, which occurred in 722 B.C. We have the description of the, of the carrying away captive of the king of Israel into exile by the Babylonians in Psalm 89 in 586 B.C. We have the exile itself by the waters of Babylon. We sat down and wept in 537 B.C. And we have the return from exile when we, we thought we were dreaming when we came back to Jerusalem in, one, in Psalm 126, which would be 536 to 520 B.C. So we're talking about a book that has developed over 500 years. And the question is, was that book just thrown together without any sense of organization? And that's the way we have read the Psalms for the past 2,000 years. But as a matter of fact, it seems that there are structures in the book. And I indicated 12 different obvious structures that are right there on, in your face that show that someone had some intent to organize the, the Psalms together in books, book 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, which have a biblical theological structure in them, moving from con from from confrontation with enemies to communication with enemies to devastation of God's people in book 3 
to maturation in which they are in exile and yet, Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations to consummation in which God's people shout hallelujah. So there's clearly a development here. And that development must have been as a consequence of some more than one person across 500 years organizing and reorganizing, not modifying, not rewriting. If if you read the critics, they talk about, they use the word Davidizing. Davidizing. What is that? Well, in order to make the Psalms more convincing to people, the editors pretended like they were by David. But they weren't really by David. Well, no. Once you destroy the integrity of the psalm, you have been destroyed its power as the word of God because God is never going to speak in something that is not truth. So we reject Davidizing and we reject a modification. Now, indeed, there are some cases where an early psalm has been taken over and revised in a later psalm But it's not that it's presented as though it were earlier. It's presented as something that is later. We have quite a few cases in which there are hybrid psalms. Psalms in which more than one psalm has been joined with another psalm later on in the processes of of editorializing or, or arranging of the psalms. And we know that someone during or after Israel's exile put the whole thing together. And they put it together in such a way as to lead Israel in its worship services, but also to reveal in memorable fashion that people could memorize the whole Psalter. You know, when the psalmist begins and says, Blessed is the man who meditates on your law day and night. Now tell me how the Israelite farmer could meditate on the law of God day and night. Who had a copy of the law? Hmm? The priests, maybe one or two copies in the temple. The king was ordered to have his own bedside copy of the whole of the scriptures. But the average Israelite never, ever had the privilege you and I have of many versions in our house so many Bibles, which Bible, which, where's my Bible? And we've got five or six Bibles scattered all over the house. They never saw a Bible. So how were they to meditate on the law day and night? Well, they memorized it. And if Luther is right that the Psalter is a little Bible that the Holy Spirit wanted to give us, with everything in it, in that one book, and if it is in a poetic form that makes it much easier to memorize, And even some key psalms, as we shall see, are acrostic psalms, according to the Hebrew alphabet, which makes it even easier to memorize, then it's very likely when every time they went to the temple, they heard these psalms repeated, they learned how to sing these psalms, it was in their mind so they could meditate on them day and night. Just in the last couple of years, I've met two people from Scotland that... Oh yeah, of course. I know the whole Psalter. 1 through 150. We, the only thing we sing in church is the Psalms. In our daily devotions as a family, we go through the Psalms. 
in the Middle Ages, why the, 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 the monks, they would go through the whole Psalter every day. And certainly every week, over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. What are we missing? What are we missing? We think we know so much because we've got all that information on the computer. But they knew a lot more than we did by having the word of God hidden in their hearts. And so we are all challenged. I, over the last month or two, I've been trying to memorize one of the acrostic psalms. And I want to tell you, in, in Hebrew, and I want to tell you that's not easy. It's not easy. But if it were not for the acrostic structure, I would never be able to memorize 22 verses in Hebrew. And so I'm convinced that they are there, structured, so that the average Israelite could have at his fingertips the whole of the book of Psalms. Now, so just to review, we start with book one is confrontation with the enemies. 37 of the 41 Psalms of Book 1 talk about enemies, enemies, enemies. Book 2, communication. A new kind of relationship to these enemies, rather than them and us. It's come, nations, and worship with us. Come and praise the Lord. Come and bring your offerings. Recognize that you're going to be defeated by the same God who defeated the Egyptians, but he's speaking directly to them rather than a them and us. Bring down judgment on them. Destroy them. Wipe them off the face of the earth. That's book one. Book two is, come you nations, join with us. Praise the Lord. Instead of Yahweh, 270 times to 50 times in book one, it's over against Elohim in book two. It's Elohim, the general name of God. 197 times to 32 times in book two. Elohim over Yahweh, why the change? Communication, the general name of God, so that the heathen can hear and listen to these psalms. Now, the book three, devastation, we have at least four psalms in book three out of the 17 that specifically describe the destruction of the northern and southern capitals and the banishment of the king of Israel out of the land of promise. That is amazing. That's not anywhere else in the rest of the Psalter. Devastation, judgment is what is happening. We are now 300, 400 years, 500 years after David and the tone is different. God's people are going to need devastation psalms. When the tsunami comes, it may only be less than 1% of of Japanese that are confessing Christians, but don't you know that they needed God to speak to them when their whole life is devastated? When a hurricane hits the Mississippi Gulf Coast, which where my grandfather's home was, had been there for, for decades, and I went back to see, and I couldn't, there were a few bricks, and that was all gone. Everything gone. Well, those times come. And you need God's word to tell you how to react to those things. And that's why we have devastation. Then maturation. If there's no land, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no king, no kingdom, what have you got? Psalm 90. Oh Lord, 
You have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains or the hills were brought forth, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So even though we're out of the land, even though we're in exile, even though we've been devastated, we suddenly find you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a movement here. There's a progression. There's a flow. And finally, we come to consummation with that one word. Don't say it softly. What is that one word? Hallelujah. Once more. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. There's going to be a multitude in heaven and you're not going to even have to learn the heavenly language. That's going to be the heavenly word. Hallelujah. And all the nations of the world are going to come together according to Revelation chapter 19 and shout hallelujah because that's the word of the consummation. Now we're going to go back to some details here. And I... You're, you can look at your sheet. I'll let you look at your sheet now. That, but look up at the top where you have the Technicolor. That's much going to be much more effective for you, I think. And uh, yeah, I have dated myself when I say Technicolor, haven't I? <laughs> That's been gone a long time. Technicolor. What is Technicolor? Well, that's what it is. So here we have the... We, we'll just have to take this a portion at a time. But here we have the 41 Psalms of Book 1 and arranged so we can see something of the, these 41 Psalms. Now, just generally speaking, how many Psalms do you think the average Christian could identify by substance of Book 1? 41 Psalms. How many do you think, if you said, what's in Psalm 8? How many do you think? What's, well, they would identify Psalm 23, wouldn't they? Yeah. What about Psalm 32? Yeah. Confession of sin. What about Book 1, or Psalm 1? Probably so. Psalm 2, would they know what's in Psalm 2? Maybe, maybe not. How many would you say? Six, eight, four? Listen carefully. If you follow me today, before you leave this room, you will be able to identify 37 of the 41 Psalms of Book 1. Do you believe me? 37 of the 41 Psalms of Book 1. Just by seeing the structure. We're going to look at 10 different aspects of the structure of Book 1. I have made a huge promise, and my time has been shortened to 25 minutes, and I may not make it. But let's look and see. So, fresh look. First of all, we have two introductory psalms. You look and you see, you know, all, almost all, just in terms of authorship, almost all the psalms are Davidic in Book 1. Almost all are by David. In fact, about 37 of the 41, may, we may say, are clearly Davidic, and very possibly they all were by David. Now, the next little column here says Torah slash Messianic coupling. Torah slash Messianic coupling. Psalm 1, Psalm 2 are a coupling of a Torah psalm. What's Torah? Law. But it's much more than law. Torah is teaching. 
Yara, the root of that means to teach, to instruct, to guide. So the, you know, law has too many negative connotations, particularly in the modern world. But teaching, instruction, divine guidance, divine leadership for your life, that's what Torah is. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah, in the teaching, in the instruction, in the guidance of the Lord. And on that Torah, that teaching, that guidance, that instruction, he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. That's the blessing of the Torah, the law. That's Psalm 1. And that is coupled with a second introductory psalm, which is a messianic psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people roar against Yahweh and against Mashiacho, his Messiah? Yahweh and Messiah are coupled with one another. And in the end of that psalm, worship the Lord and kiss the Son in homage. I have turned over the responsibility of subduing the nations to my Messiah, my anointed one. Now that's obviously not just David. That's looking far beyond David to the future where he shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. David was the first of these, but from then on he is anticipating the ultimate Messiah. But what do you have here in Psalms 1 and 2? They're like two great pillars, if you can imagine that, by which you enter into the temple of the Psalter. They didn't accidentally come here. They were coupled together by the intention of the arranger of the psalmist. Now I say that very dogmatically, but it seems quite clear that Psalms 1 and 2 were set there for the purpose of setting overriding themes that are going to be developed throughout the whole of the Psalter. There's the confrontation between those who are the enemies of God's people and those who are among God's people. The righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. And what do you have? You have Torah and Messiah, law and gospel. Torah and Messiah, law and gospel. You need them both. Without law, you are condemned. Without gospel, without Messiah, you are condemned. We need them both. And so they have been coupled together. Torah and Messiah, law and gospel. But this is the first of three couplings. The first of three couplings of Torah and Messiah. And we have to move along down the line to Psalms 18 and 19. Psalms 18 and 19. And what do you see there? You see Messiah and Torah. You know Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night shows knowledge. Am I quoting the right psalm? All of a sudden my... I'm scared that I'm quoting the wrong song. (laughs) 
Yes, Psalm 19, and then the second half, the law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the ordinance of the Lord. That's Torah. And before that, Psalm 18, right at end, at the end, Verse 49, therefore I will praise you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed one, his Messiah, to David and his descendants forever. 18 and 19, Torah and Messiah. Now, if you look at your, your chart, if you can't get the whole chart up there at once, but if you'll notice that if, if you take these two lines and put them side by side, you would see 18 and 19 are like a division point right in the middle of book one. Not exactly, not, not mathematically so, but in essence, 18 and 19, the second coupling of Torah and Messiah, are right in the middle of book one and divided into two parts. And it's very interesting, and here I do not have time to go through all the details, but if you look at that chart, from Psalm 3 to Psalm 17, from 3 to 17, there's not one mention of Messiah. There's not one mention of the Anointed One, or the King, the Melech, in those psalms, from 3 to 17. Now immediately, if we can move on to 18, immediately after Psalm 18, you have Torah and Messiah coupled together, right? So you can remember now, 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, 18 and 19, Messiah and Torah. Now immediately after 18, you see the purple color coming up again. 20 through 24 are all talking about kingship. There is a grouping of five kingship psalms immediately after Psalm 18 has introduced Messiah for the first time since Psalm 2. And so you have 20 and 21 dealing with Messiah's kingship and you have to go back and read these psalms and check me out, but they specifically mention praying for the anointed one that he may have victory over all his enemies and then delighting over the fact that Messiah has defeated all his enemies. That's Messiah's kingship in 20 and 21. Now 23 and 24 are Yahweh's kingship. The Lord's kingship. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now what's the image, what's the significance of a shepherd image in the Old Testament? It's the image of a king. David shepherded them with the skillfulness of his hands and the integrity of his heart. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. God, the God, Jacob says, the God who shepherded me is. 48 or 49, the God who shepherded me through all my life. He is the shepherd king. So the king, the Messiah, needs a 
shepherd king. So Psalm 23 is talking about God the shepherd king. Psalm 24, what is that about? Lift up your heads, O you heavens, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. So, 20, put it in your head now, 20 and 21, responding to 18, are messianic king, 23 and 24 are divine king, and what's 22 in the middle? It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on for a long time talking about the sufferings of, who is it that's suffering here? It's a psalm of David, the Messiah, the anointed one. It's David, the messianic king, in his sufferings. And Jesus, as you know, takes these words on the cross and he's tipping you off. He quotes only verse 1, but he wants you to read the whole psalm because it's describing they cast lots for me, for my garments. All of those descriptions of the suffering Messiah. But don't stop reading Psalm 22 until you get to the end of the psalm. Because here you have the establishment of God as king. The first part of Psalm 22 we're familiar with. We've forgotten to read to the last part of Psalm 22. Where it says, verse 28, Dominion belongs to Yahweh and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship and bow down to the dust, will kneel before him. So, Psalm 22 is a combination of Messiah's kingship and Yahweh's kingship. So Psalms 18 and 19 are the second coupling of Messiah Psalm and Torah Psalm. And immediately after Messianic Psalm 18, you have five kingship psalms without any reference to kingship between 3 and 17. There is a reference to the anointed, to, to the Holy One, to Yahid in in the, the psalm of, of the resurrection of Christ, but otherwise there's no mention of that until you get to Psalm 18, and then following that there are five kingship psalms, two of them referring to Messiah's kingship, two of them referring to Yahweh's kingship, and the middle one referring to both Messiah's and Yahweh's kingship. Now, right after Psalm 19... In response to Psalm 19, what do you have? You have Psalm 25. And again, very interestingly, Psalm 25. There, there is no references in 3 through 17, check me out, no references to teach me, guide me, lead me, instruct me, which would be the outgrowth of a Torah psalm. There's nothing in 3 through 17. But after Psalm 19, the second coupling introduces the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord. It is echoed, answered by Psalm 25, 
in which ten times, ten times, there is a use of this phrase. See, the, the root, the verbal, and the noun, Torah is teaching, and Yara is teach me, and other Mahad to, to teach me, to learn me, those those verbs occur in Psalm 25 ten times. Teach me, guide me, lead me, order me, instruct me, guide me, teach me. Ten times in Psalm 25, answering Psalm 19. Have I lost you? Are you following to this point? Coupling of, of introductory psalms, Torah psalm and Messiah psalm. In one and two. Coupling of Messiah psalm and Torah psalm in 18 and 19. Now you know what's in Psalm 18. Now you know what's in Psalm 19. Following Psalm 18, five kingship psalms, 20 and 21 are messianic kingship, 23 and 24 are the Lord's kingship and 22 is the joining of both the Lord's the Messiah's kingship and the Lord's kingship. And following Psalm 19, the Torah Psalm, Psalm 25 says what? Teach me, lead me, guide me, Torahize me. Not terrorize me, but Torahize me. I just invented that word. You're the first person to ever hear that word. Torahize. Torahize me in Psalm 25. So now you know Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 18 and 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25. Coming along pretty well? Okay. Now let's look and see what else we see here. Going back to the beginning of Psalm, uh, of book, book 1, right. Now, the next thing we notice, come all the way back over to, to the, to the left hand side. No, yeah, right. So we have Torah and Messiah coupling the brown. Now next we have acrostic songs. Oh, I forgot to show you. Turn all the way to the back and look on the back, book five. Just as a little notation, anticipation of the future. Book five. What's Psalm 119? You know about Psalm 119? The longest psalm. And what's it about? Torah. What's Psalm 118? What would you think it would be? Messiah. Psalm 118 is quoted. Now, there's a debate about what's a quote and what isn't a quote. But it is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament talking about Christ the Messiah. You remember the when he comes in on the triumphal entry? They shout according to Psalm 118. So here is the third coupling of Messiah Psalm and Torah Psalm. And then again, it's not exactly in the middle, but it very carefully divides the first section of Book 5, Psalm 118 and 119, and then you notice you have from 120 to 134, you have all of these psalms of ascent, a whole collection of 15 psalms of ascent as they're going up to Jerusalem. 
So this is a nice dividing psalm here in book five. Okay, now let's go back to acrostic psalms. What is an acrostic psalm? What is an acrostic? Come on, theological tadpoles, tell everybody what an acrostic is. You take the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, A, B, C, D, and each verse begins with the next letter. The, the, word, the first word of the next verse begins with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you go from A to Z, or Aleph to Tav, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, throughout the whole of the Hebrew alphabet. Now there are eight acrostic songs in the Psalter. And I am fully convinced that they are placed in such a way that if you memorize, and they, they would be the easiest to memorize, of course Psalm 119 has 172 verses, so that might be something of a challenge. But otherwise, if you memorize these eight acrostic songs, which I am convinced are designed for memorization, you would have a massive grasp of much of the Psalter because they're not collected together they're separated and placed very strategically so that if you learn the acrostic psalm then you will know psalms before and after and know all sorts of interesting things that you can grasp in the Psalter because of the placement of the acrostic psalm now where are these acrostic psalms if you've got 41 psalms in book 1. 44 psalms in book 5. 31 psalms in book 2. 17 and 17 in books 3, 4, and 5. 3 and 4. Where are the acrostic psalms? 4 in book 1. 4 in book 5. Not put next to one another but scattered throughout those two largest of the books of the Psalms. Why? <laughs> For better grasping of the whole Psalter. If you know these four acrostic Psalms in the first book and the four acrostic Psalms in the fifth book, then you're much more able to grasp what is in this big book, 40, book one with 41 Psalms and what's in book 5 with 44 psalms. You don't, you know, 17 psalms and 17 psalms, that won't be so difficult to manage when we begin to see its structures. And even 31 won't be so difficult to manage when you see its structure. But we need some memorization to help us in book 1 and book 5. So, where do we find the acrostic psalm? Well... Psalm 9 and 10, they were actually originally almost certainly were one psalm because they begin the alphabet and run through one half the alphabet in Psalm 9. And Psalm 2, it skips about eight verse eight letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but then ends with the final letters, five or six letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have 11 treated in book nine, book 9 and 11 possibly treated in, or in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. So that's one acrostic. Now, where is it placed? 
right in the middle of the section between books 1 and 2 and books and Psalm, Psalms 1 and 2 and Psalms 18 and 19. So you've got 1 and 2 as Torah, Psalm, and Messiah, Psalm. 18 and 19, Torah, Psalm, and Messiah, Psalm, or Messiah, Psalm, and Torah, Psalm. And right between those, 9 and 10, and these are acrostic psalms. Now, where is the next acrostic? Psalm 25 is the next acrostic, and this is that Torah psalm that we definitely want to memorize. Teach me, guide me, lead me, instruct me, over ten times over. So, 9 and 10, and Psalm 25. Now, this splits this second section, alright, between 19 and the next acrostic psalm, 34, Psalm 25, not, not exactly according to mathematicians, but roughly in the middle of that section. Okay? So you've got, what's 9 and 10? Acrostic psalm. What's 25? Acrostic psalm. Where are the next acrostic psalms? We have to move over to 34. Oh, here we are, 34 and 35. You see the purple up there? 34 and 37 are both acrostic songs. Now it's very interesting, very, very interesting, that these two acrostic songs, 34 and 37, bracket four songs of the innocent sufferer. Four songs of the innocent sufferer. Again, they're breaking up the segment of this last segment of book one, so 34 and 37, bracket four psalms of what? The innocent sufferer. You read them, and you will not find any confession of sin. Lord, why is this happening to me? So pastor, elder, when you're visiting with someone who's had a tragedy... They had an automobile accident. They were driving according to the law. They weren't doing anything wrong. And they're smashed and they're in the hospital. Lord, why is this happening to me? Go read Psalms 34 through 37. Okay? Now, immediately after 34 through 7, through 37, what are the next? Count them. 38. Count them with me. 38. 39. 40. They are all psalms of the guilty sufferer. In every one of these psalms, name them again. They are psalms of the guilty sufferer. In every one of those psalms, there is confession of sin. Lord, I confess I've done wrong. Please have mercy upon me. And when someone comes to you and confesses their sin and says, what do I do? Where do you point them? Go home and read Psalms. 39, Okay. Now what's 34 through 37? The innocent sufferer. And they're bracketed by acrostic Psalms. And do you think that just happened? Four innocent sufferer Psalms. Four guilty sufferer Psalms. Bracketed by acrostic song, 34 and 37. I don't think that just happened. 
Now, very interesting, the next little line here says, creation song. There are three psalms in book one that deal with the theme of creation. And can you locate them? Let's go back to the beginning here. Where is the first creation psalm? Psalm 8. Okay. You remember Psalm 8? I have to remind myself exactly how it goes. I know it's a creation psalm. And... You have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you have mind, mindful of him, and the son of man that you visited him? Where is that creation psalm in relation to the acrostic psalm? Right before. So if nine and ten is an acrostic psalm, what's eight? A creation psalm. Let's go to the next acrostic psalm. That's twenty-five. You see acrostic Psalm 25? What's right before Psalm 25? Psalm 24. And what does Psalm 24, how does it read? It says, Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. What's that? Creation. So if you know Psalm 25 is an acrostic psalm, you know Psalm 24 is a creation psalm. Let's go to the next one, Psalm 34. Psalm 34, the other direction. Oops. Okay, Psalm 34. There is acrostic Psalm 34 and 37. What are, what's the significance of 34 and 37? You know, the, the secret of successful memory is Review, review, review. I'm trying to review, review, review with you, okay? 34 and 37 are acrostic psalms which bracket the innocent sufferer, followed by four psalms that are guilty sufferer. So you know those eight psalms, right? And before Psalm 34 is Psalm 33. And what does Psalm 33 say? Talks about God's creation. It's a creation song. Verse 8 Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So, if you know 9 and 10 is an acrostic, what's 8? If 25 is an acrostic, what's 24? If 34 is an acrostic, what's 33? Now, isn't that interesting? Do you think that just happened? Would someone please tell me why a creation psalm precedes an acrostic psalm? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Please, someone explain to me why it is arranged that way. I suspect there's some rationale, but I can't figure it out. But it's there. It's obviously there. Okay, what next have we got? Significant groupings. We're, we're up. Our time is finished. Now what do we do? That's a great question. Okay, is this a class coming up or something? Dr. Shaw, our time is up. What would you like for us to do? Uh, 11.15. Okay. Yeah. Five, five more minutes. Five more minutes. Okay. Just to show you, you know, five significant groupings. We've already seen a significant grouping 
right? Of what? What is 20 through 24? Come on. Don't let me down. Kingship songs. Five kingship songs. Now, when God entered into a covenant with David, he played with the word house. David, you're not going to build me a house. Your son is going to build me a house. What's he talking about? A temple. I shall build you, David, I shall build you a house. What's he talking about? Dynasty. These are the two focal points of the Davidic covenant. And who wrote Psalms 1 through 41? What do you think is in David's mind? David's covenant, God's covenant with him, who promised dynasty and dwelling place, right? So the first major grouping is 20 through 24, which is dynasty, the kingship, the messiahship, and ultimately the joining of David's kingship with God's kingship. That's the whole movement of redemptive history. When the Messiah's kingship is joined with David's kingship. Now, what's the other major aspect of the Davidic covenant? The dwelling place. And so, what do you find, moving on down to the second segment here? Yes. Right. Back over a little bit. Right. And you have from 26, right after 25, what's 25? Torah, no, it's not a Torah psalm. It's teach me, lead me, guide me, instruct me, etc. The regal dwelling place psalms. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven psalms that all mention God's dwelling place in different ways. A sequence of God's dwelling place, his house, his kingdom. Where how many, many ways in which the dwelling place of God is mentioned. That's not necessarily the focus of each of these psalms from 26 through 32, but the dwelling place is there. And very prominent, particularly in 26 and 27. So you have another grouping, a major grouping of regal dwelling place psalms, the other aspect of the Davidic covenant from 26 through 32. Now, I don't have time to test you, and I have a few minute more things that I need to say to show you that you can know 37 of the 41 psalms. If I only had a few more minutes, I could convince you of that within an hour's time. And that's all from seeing the structure that is inherent in the Psalter. Would that be useful? Would that be helpful? Is it really there or if I have, have I imagined it? You know, I ask myself the question. Is this, am I imagining these things? I don't think I am. But if I am, please tell me before I go into publicity, into publication with this. Okay? I'd rather be embarrassed right now in front of you than embarrassed in front of the world. Because you can't draw back a publication once it comes out. So you pray for me, please, that if I'm way out in left field, somebody will stop me before I go any further with this. But I am fully convinced. I've only shown you book one. Wait till you see book two. And then book three. 
and then book four, and then book five, and see the structures. And they're all in your little charts here. And later when the book comes out, hopefully they'll all be in Technicolor. (laughs) Yeah, like mine. See, I have one in Technicolor. Isn't that nice? And the nice thing is you can just fold it and put it in your Bible and carry it with you. And when they start reading a psalm in church, now where is that? Let's see. Let me see exactly where that is. And you place it in context. And you're blessed. Well, let's pray. How wondrous is your word, O Lord. And we are just little small creatures. But you have said, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. And you have made us all kings, little kinglets, in your likeness and image. And we love to search out a matter such as your word. Thank you for the joy that comes as we study your truth and find new things, new gems every day. And help us to find joy in sharing it with others. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.